From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. In today's podcast, I'll be talking to Guntram Wolf. He's been the director of Europe's influential Bruegel think tank since 2013. He's now served his maximum term and leaves Bruegel next year and has enormous insights and interesting things to say after all those years. And I've heard that, you know, his attention is now already shifting to a more global perspective, notably ongoing work on how to finance a more effective response to future pandemics. Yes, indeed. And, and he also speaks passionately about the challenge of climate change. I'm very much looking forward to his insights. Over to you, Janet. Guntram, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to Forward Thinking, MGI's podcast. Thanks for having me. So obviously, I wanted to start with the pandemic. It's what in, is on all our minds. It's been such an extraordinarily turbulent period for Europe and, and all the world. With your economist's hat on, if you had to choose, what would be the one insight you would take away from what has happened? Well, I think the one insight that I would immediately take away is that pandemics are probably the most costly uh, thing that uh, can occur to, to humanity, costly both in in economic terms, but of course, beyond the economics, also in social, human and, and welfare terms. Um, and so, so really, I think if there's one priority on which the world uh, community needs to deliver, it is about reducing the probability of, of new pandemics emerging. It's really about investing into the necessary medical and non-medical uh, preparedness so that you know we bring down the probability of these pandemics, bring them down massively. And if you look at what the science tells us is that really these kind of pandemics can happen more frequently now than, than they used to happen. And that's a real risk. It's a real risk for, for us as individuals, as societies, and for our economic prosperity. And uh, frankly speaking, it's appalling how little we are investing into uh, preventing those, those this risk. You have been appointed as a project director of the High Level Independent Panel on Financing the Global Commons for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. Very long title. I would love to hear a bit about what you are doing there and what, what the aim is there. Look, I, I didn't choose the title, but I think the title sort of nicely summarizes what uh, what this project is all about. It is really about thinking uh, uh, what kind of funding and how much funding uh, is needed and how the funding needs to be organized so that um, the likelihood uh, of future pandemics is significantly reduced. And if pandemics strike, you know, the response can be rolled out extremely quickly. And we were requested and asked to do this on behalf of the uh, G20 presidency of Italy and, you know, prepared a report which was presented um, in July to the G20 finance ministers. And in a sense, what is, I think, here uh, striking is that it's one of th those first instances really where this pandemic topic, which is typically a global health topic and typically be dealt with by health ministers and health ministries, was on top of the agenda of, of finance ministers. And so, so really, I think what, what the whole purpose of this, this project was, um, and the discussions are still ongoing now more on the implementation phase, it was really to bring this to the, to the top of the agenda of, of finance ministries 
and and to ensure that that funding is there. And um, I think the key message in our report really is that the funding that we need is actually very limited. I mean, we need something like 15 billion uh, US dollars per year which is is nothing compared to the cost of a pandemic, which uh, we estimate to be um, in the, in the tens of trillions, actually. So, so this is probably the the cheapest global public good we can get with the highest return. I mean, and so it's really not understandable why uh, the world community so far hasn't been able to to put up the money. Obviously, funding is is a, a, a vital part of this, but it's also the, the institutional arrangements, the actually the execution of the policy. I mean, how do you solve that and get the international community, whatever that is, to work together? Yeah, that's right. I think our report has the the two legs in a sense. The one leg is the funding leg, and the other leg is the what we call the governance leg. And so the emphasis there is very much on on the need to uh, improve coordination globally on these issues. And I think the starting observation is that current institutions are not enough, not adequately resourced. And, um, you know, the competences of the current institutions, such as the World Health Organization and others, uh, are not strong enough uh, to actually do the job. And so, um, so what we need and what we are proposing is something that we call a global pandemic threats board. Um, so, I mean, you can give it a different name, but it's basically the idea is to have a, a regular gathering at the G20 level of finance and health ministers, ideally, that, you know, discuss the risks and discuss where the funding uh, needs most urgent uh, and where should, and how to channel those funding needs. So it's really about yeah, I mean, and, and I think perhaps one more point, I mean, the tension um, in the global tension on this debate is, you know, whether or not this should be primarily a G20 driven process um, or a United Nations driven process. In the end, I think we are sort of advocating more for the G20 approach uh, because we, we we wanted to prioritize efficiency of decision making over, let's say, breadth of representation. Um but but that clearly is a tension. And my biggest worry now is that um, in the negotiations that are ongoing, th- these kind of institutional battles will prevent meaningful progress. And that would really be, really be a pity. It was very interesting in just in the European context on the vaccine drive that you saw a tension between moving in lockstep and having a European response with the European Commission in charge of vaccine procurement and, you know, member states wanting to go quicker. I mean, what were your reflections on that episode and what it said about the kind of institutional setup of pandemic preparedness, vaccines um, and, you know, our response to events like this? Well, I, I think um, on the European level, my my main view is that it was the right decision to uh, to centralize the purchase of of vaccines. It would have been extremely painful, extremely difficult for the cohesion of the European Union if some countries had had the vaccine and had had uh, vaccinated their populations, while others wouldn't even have had an, any access to the vaccines. So, so this was the right decision to do this. Um, 
And I think the second observation is that um, when that decision was taken, uh, that was the summer of last year, it was taken half a year later than uh, the decision of Donald Trump to actually uh, get the program uh, going. And so, so in a sense, the US had a head start and so did the UK relative to the European institutions. The European institutions didn't even have a proper institution for that. So they had to sort of find resources within the institution to actually mobilize um, the, the, the competences and the resources to do this. And so, so I think these are good reasons that explain why initially it went somewhat more slowly. Um, but the third point I really want to make is that the European institutions then over-delivered. I mean, we, we are now ahead of the US and I think even ahead of the UK in, in, in vaccination rates. And on top of it, the European Union has actually exported half of its production um, and so has given a, a big contribution to the global community and has kept uh, global trade also open and thereby really, I think, um, helped uh, combat this this pandemic quite substantially. So, so in the end, I'm actually quite proud of how the European um, institutions handled that. And I think it's, it's in the end, I think it will be remembered as a success story. Yes, I mean, it was slow at the start, but clearly the vaccine drive um, became a success. Obviously, we also have another huge reason for international coordination, and that is climate risk and climate change. We're talking in the run-up to the COP26 meeting, which is so crucial in Glasgow. How do you see that panning out? What's the mood, mood music like? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think the first observation and also linking it to our previous topic is that I sort of understand that it's difficult to get climate change under control because doing that is actually costly. I mean, it's it's not that these are small investments. We need huge investments to change our energy and transport systems, very much in contrast to the pandemic where we talk about, you know, double-digit billions. Um, here in climate change, we are talking of three-digit or even four-digit uh, uh, global investments that, that will be needed. And so so there, I think, it's sort of understandable that every country will have a tendency to hope that somebody else does the, does the job first and, you know, uh, sort of delay the costs um, uh, on their own citizens. Um, so, so it's a much harder nut to crack, uh, much harder global, global commons uh, to, to deliver on. We are starting to enter a phase on climate change, I would say, where there's actually more and more business interests because the technology for of clean energy has become uh, so cheap that it's becoming uh, competitive and you know a real realistic alternative to uh, to uh, fossil fuels. So in that sense, I, I do think there are some reasons for optimism. The technological progress really helps us achieve these climate goals. But on the whole, um, if I can say sort of on the big picture, the, perhaps the last point on this is, I mean, we are still very far away from reaching our climate goals. On the contrary, um, global emissions continue to rise. They don't fall. They continue to rise. And um, the speed of decoupling between economic growth on the one hand and uh, emissions is just still uh, too slow. And so, so we need to massively accelerate this decoupling. Otherwise, we the world will just miss um, the 2050 targets. And um, that means climate change will be unchecked in the next years, um, in the next decades. So massive investments 
a massive speed up of technological uh, development, a massive speed up of rollout of these technologies is is all is all needed, and um, the co world community is is far away from really solving this. But as you say, there are technological opportunities, there is business and money to be made out of renewables and other technologies. And also, I mean, MGI has written extensively on the huge cost to the global economy of um, extreme weather events and, 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 and a warming planet. So I think that, uh, do, you, do you see the sort of balance of incentives tipping in the right direction, if you like? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way I would interpret the risks um, uh, that climate change poses on on our economies, on our daily lives, is 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 really uh, I think that's really an important factor for domestic politics. And you know, in that sense, I think it 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 changes the narrative and it 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 tips the balance because you know citizens see how climate change is affecting now their daily lives and uh, and they demand action and. Politically, it becomes more of a winning proposition now to say, well, we are going to do something, uh, we're going to invest in adaptation, which we will have to do. We will have to do massive investments in adaptation because climate change is already with us and will be more with us in the next 20, 30 years. Even if we do an extremely rapid decarbonization, we will still face uh, more adverse weather events uh, in the coming two decades. So we need to invest in adaptation. That's a politically uh, winning strategy. It's a very, very big challenge and a very big topic. I just wanted to maybe narrow our lens a little bit and talk about the post-pandemic recovery in Europe. Do you, do you think that Europe is in good shape to recover? I mean, I think it's a big topic and it's always the, um, the, the most difficult part of, of the Eurozone. It, it is the discrepancies between, between countries. Um, in single countries where um, recoveries are more even, um, sort of, it is easier to to implement a monetary policy. But the EU and the eurozone uh, do have this divergence and do have these different performances. Um, now, having said that, in a sense, this COVID pandemic, from that point of view, was a was a was a good pandemic uh, because. Um, we had a shock that affected everyone, right? And um, even though the south of Europe was affected more strongly than the north of Europe, everyone was affected by this pandemic. And that allowed to come up with a joint response, which is now called a recovery fund, right? Um, I mean, the next generation EU, it's called. Um, so, so, so there is a joint response now, a joint budget instrument, Um that is providing actually a lot of support, uh, in particular to the south of Europe. Um, and so it helps overcome the divergences and reduce the divergences in the Eurozone and therefore gives a, gives a good starting uh, base for a more even recovery. And so in that sense, I do think that monetary policy and the European Central Bank has you know, more um, capacity uh, now to really act uh, based on the eurozone aggregates so on the on the average numbers of the eurozone rather than having to worry too much about about individual countries so the recovery fund is clearly an example of a europe-wide economic support in the face of the pandemic but there are broader issues which you and i are, are very well aware of about fiscal policy to back the eurozone so 
So the OECD said in its May 2021 outlook, slow or inefficient implementation of the EU recovery plan, possibly accompanied by the reinstatement of essentially unreformed European fiscal rules in 2023, would slow the recovery, risk reigniting sovereign debt tensions and more generally weaken the cohesion and further integration prospects of the euro area. What did you make of that? The fiscal rules have quite a bit of flexibility and a lot depends on, you know, how do you interpret and how do you implement implement the fiscal rules? I mean, it's clear that if you take some of these rules literally and you were to implement literally what the rule says, it would, would be a disaster. I mean, in, but I think we also need to accept the fact that, you know, now we are in a situation where Deficits are very high. Debt levels are very high. Uh, growth is back. Inflation is back. I mean, no, at some stage, governments will have to tighten the belt. And there's just no way around this. And um, you shouldn't do it too rapidly, but it will have to happen. And um, I think we are, not, we are now in a phase where this message needs to sink in. Now, there's one area where I think we need some sort of an exception, and that's green investments. Um, I think the other sort of ring fencing argument I think that that's relevant is 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 youth. I mean youth unemployment has remained extraordinarily high uh, in the 10 or more years since the global financial crisis in parts of Europe and I think you've called for you know more financing to support young people. Can you say a little bit about what you have in mind? Yeah, I mean, I I think my uh, thinking there was very much shaped by the um, global, the aftermath of the global financial crisis, where governments across Europe committed to preserve investment, preserve invest, uh, education spending, preserve everything that's future related. And when I looked at the, what actually happened uh, in 2015, I looked back at what actually happened in the budgets. Exactly the opposite happened. So investment was cut, education spending was cut, research and development spending was cut. Now in this consolidation phase, um, governments again uh, deprioritize the future. I mean, it's going to be very painful and very, very, very bad for our future and very bad for young young families, for the younger generation. And I, I think, you know, given given how few young people we have. I mean, we just can't afford spoiling our youth. I mean, uh, sort of. I mean, the, 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 the recovery, the economic recovery after the global financial crisis took a long time because of the debt overhang and, and possibly policy choices that were made. Do you think that there's a danger that the same very slow recovery might happen this time or are you more optimistic? I think I'm more optimistic this time because um, I think because policymakers, I'm firmly convinced, have learned their lesson. I mean, it's a very different conversation in Europe now than the conversation was um, uh, back in 2011 or 12. Uh, clearly, policymakers want to avoid the policy mistakes that they made uh, eight, nine years ago. Um, no premature tightening, no excessive fiscal tightening. Thing that everybody is agreeing on. I, I haven't come across any sort of major policymaker saying, oh, now we need to have rapid fiscal consolidation and very strong stop to that. Um, so in that sense, I'm, I'm more optimistic. The, the optimism there is we've also advanced all 
a lot in terms of the use of digital technologies and so on and so forth. So I'm I'm somehow thinking that perhaps in the end this will be even remembered as a as a productivity increasing event, right? I mean, it's been bad at the moment, but we all learned so much. Um, so perhaps productivity will actually go up. Yes, indeed. Uh, MGI uh, wrote a report earlier this year saying that there could be a productivity bonus from this uh, pandemic because it's accelerated digitization, it's accelerated business innovation, possibly accelerated automation. But of course, that has its own imperative to skill people and to help them to make those transitions. So that could be indeed a silver lining um, to the pandemic. Do you see any other silver linings to the pandemic? Perhaps for society, perhaps for the way we interact with each other yeah i'm i'm not so sure <laughs> on that one uh, i mean i think uh, this is more difficult as an economist to evaluate but i mean I, my my view is that um i mean uh, our i think our societies and the way we are and we the way we operate i mean Yes, we have shown some resilience, but yes, we've also, I mean, it's been very tough on so many individuals and so many families. And uh, and again, let me say again, the young, I mean, the, the, the loss um, of schooling uh, and, you know, the negative impact that has had, not just on their productivity, but on the development of these young kids and the toll that families have taken. I mean, this is all... I mean, it's been very tough and very so. So I'm not sure I can see uh, immediately a silver lining here. I think it's it's a lot of repair that also will have to happen, uh, a repair to families, uh, really. Um, so I, I'm not sure that society goes out of this stronger than it used to be. Looking back on your eight years now, I think as director of Bruegel, you've been through a couple of big crises. <laughs> When you reflect on those last eight or nine years, what are your key reflections from those eight or nine years that you've been at Bruegel? Well, I mean, I, I think I think uh, perhaps one reflection is certainly that the European Union project has been remarkably resilient. I mean, it's been uh, so many times that uh, journalists called me up basically asking whether this is now the end of the EU, the end of the Eurozone, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, here we are. And, you know, every time there's new instruments, new joint decisions, um, uh, new capacities that are being built. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the thing looks stronger than it used to look um, when I when I uh, started in my current position. So, so, yes, I think there is a sort of positive forward momentum that we can observe. I guess the second, however, that, that that's the, the more negative side on it, it's it's always takes a bit too long and it's a bit too difficult to take these decisions and um, that's not just painful to observe but it it also costs us dearly as a as a society um, and you know doesn't help us um, to be quite as advanced as we should and you know I I think if I look forward. Uh, you know what I worry about is that our societies um, and our our countries. Have have fallen behind on on some key issues on investment on on new technologies um, because we've been so absorbed with sort of solving the eurozone problems the banking problems then the pandemic 
um, that you know we we probably haven't invested enough into artificial intelligence, new new technologies, uh, where uh, you know we risk uh, falling behind even further. And so so um, I think the next, if you ask me, the next five or ten years, the focus should really be on. You know, let's let's do these these kind of investments um, that you know we get again to the top. I mean, because the talent is there, um, the money is there, but it needs it needs the push uh, to actually get 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 this done. Yes, I mean, we MGI has written about digital Europe and Europe's position on AI, for example, and it, it's clear that apart from some pockets of of real innovation, that Europe has fallen behind on some of these frontier technologies. I just wanted to ask you one thing about the last 10 years. I think 10 years ago, you described the lack of fiscal union for the Eurozone as a fundamental weakness. And yet, as far as I know, we're no closer to achieving that fiscal union. In my past life as a journalist, I interviewed Robert Mundell, um, who wrote, you know, who won the Nobel Prize for his optimal currency theory. And Large-scale fiscal transfers are absolutely the sine qua non of a successful currency area. How do you see that? Well, I mean, I I personally still think that the uh, the core fragility of the eurozone is the fact that um, we have a central monetary authority but decentralized uh, fiscal authorities, and that produces all kinds of problems and frictions. But I do think if I compare the Eurozone now from what it looked like in 2008 when I actually moved to Brussels, it's just such a different animal now. I mean, there's so many fiscal instruments that have been created. Um, There's the ESM. uh, There is uh, significant steps on the banking uh, union with uh, some also fiscal backup uh, to it. And more recently, of course, the recovery fund. Uh, And the recovery fund is a one-off. Yes, it's a pandemic one-off. But yes, it's a massive transfer at a time of a severe negative shock to the south of Europe. And it's massive, the transfer. I mean, it's several percentage points of GDP that we are seeing here. So so really, um, yeah, it's just a one-off. But once you create a one-off... If I'm convinced if there's another big, 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 big shock, you know, that insurance instrument is there and can be activated. Um, but it, it requires the political will then, but it can be activated. And so in that sense, the Eurozone is now much more robust because it has created insurance mechanisms that depend on political decisions. Every time it will be a new political fight. But the fact that it exists changes the conversation. And so, um, yeah, in that sense, I think the Eurozone has become much, much more robust. And I think it's uh, it's really a much more stable animal now than it was in 2008. I wanted to finally share with you a wonderful image that occurred when a German politician spoke at an MGI meeting we held in Berlin a couple, two or three years ago. He was talking about how Europe feels hemmed in by sort of geopolitical threats and how that means that Europe needs to be big and bold and united. And what he said was that Europe is the last vegetarian in a world of carnivores. And I just wondered if that resonates with you. I'm not so sure I like this metaphor so much, to be quite honest, because... um 
I mean, I like the uh, the argument that Europe uh, needs to be united because of the world uh, and because of uh, its role in the world. Um, I think the prime motivation in the initial phase of the European Union project was peace, um, peace on the continent. I think that has shifted now to um, being a player on the globe and, you know, managing globalization in our interests. So, so that I like. But, you know, carnivore... I mean, I don't think I don't think uh, we we want to be uh, such strong carnivores, and I also and I also think, by the way, that in some areas we actually are are quite robust, and you know, it's not that we are just sort of eating grass. I mean, on some on some issues, we have we have pretty strong instruments by now, and make them make our neighbors feel those instruments. So, so in that sense, it seems to me. Um, we are probably we, we probably moved quite a bit from the vegetarian away. Although being vegetarians, of course, is extremely good for the climate. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. On that note, thank you so much for a, a, a fascinating chat. Good luck with your work on the preparedness for future pandemics and fingers crossed for COP26. Thank you so much for having me. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chuli. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren.